Well, good morning. Morning, church. Thank you, worship team. Great job this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to uh, Luke chapter 6 as we continue our journey through the book of Luke. We're going to be today in verses um, uh, 17 through 26 as we begin one of my favorite sections of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I, I, wish, uh, I wish we were able to go through the, the Matthew section, uh, but maybe maybe uh, maybe some other time. But I, uh, at least we get we get to dip our toes here into the shorter the shorter version of the Sermon on the Mount. But if you remember last week, we we talked about Jesus's calling of the apostles, and as Jesus called his apostles, uh, kind of the the main theme that we we talked about last week was just the diversity of the apostles. Just how different they were, but yet how unified they were in Christ. And hopefully, you know, this, this week you've, you've been encouraged by that, maybe as you've interacted with people in the body that uh, would be a little different than you, maybe speak a little different than you, look a little different than you, maybe a different age, different interests, different passions, different personalities, things of that nature. Maybe that might tend to, to rub you the wrong way, or maybe you're just not that interested. And maybe, maybe this week you've found a a greater appreciation uh, that the Lord uses all sorts of people in this local body, because we are all different, aren't we? And uh, and the Lord's going to continue to build His church with different people, different personalities. But even though we're all different, there is an aspect that we are all the same, and I can guarantee you that we all did the same thing this week. Each of us, every day. Each of us was pursuing our idea of the good life. We were. All of us. Now, that, that could be different from everybody. We were, we were pursuing what we think would be the good life. You know, if, 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 if I kind of just had this, that would be the good life. Now, now, that standard is different for everyone in here, you know. The, you know, not everyone's trying to buy a, you know, seven-bedroom house, you know, 8,000 square feet. We drive a, you know, luxury car. I'm not saying that's, that's everyone's pursuit. But maybe you were a college student, and you're thinking, you know, my key to the good life is getting good grades. Or high school student, my, my key to the good life is, is having a, a, a nice-looking girlfriend. Or maybe, you know, my, my key to the, to the good life is... is Getting this next interview to help me become a Chick-fil-A owner-operator. Sell a few more mattresses. You know, I, I, you know we, we have all of these things, ideas of the good life looks like this. Maybe the good life looks like comfort. Maybe the, maybe the good life looks like health. Maybe the good life looks like a, a more uh, robust social media following to, to make yourself look more important or become a local celebrity. I don't know. But each of us every day is pursuing our idea of the good life. All of us. Again, that, that, that does look different for all of us. The question is, does Jesus have something to say about the good life? Is, is that just some sort of relative idea that, you know, what your idea of the good life is, is good for you, and that's okay, and my idea of the good life is good for me, and, and that's okay. And, you know, as long as we're pursuing our idea of the good life, we're all good, and God's good with it, that's good. As long as we're true to ourselves, 
then we're good. We're happy. As long as I'm not hurting anybody in my idea of the good life, I am good. God's good with it. What do you care? That's a predominant idea in our culture. Does God care about the good life? Is there such thing as the good life in God's economy? I would argue, yes, God cares about the good life. God has defined the good life. And my main point this morning, he hasn't just defined it, he doesn't just care about it, but main point, Jesus offers his disciples the good life. Isn't that good news? If you're a disciple of Jesus, Jesus offers the good life. Maybe, maybe this morning you were just trying to figure out, what do I want to do with my life? Where is it going to go? What's the point? Jesus is going to give us a picture of the good life. So if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you've made your way to Luke chapter 6. Let's begin. Uh, follow along as I, as I read aloud, starting in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood at a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Oh, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. May God bless the reading of his word. Main point, Jesus offers his disciples the good life. Point one, Jesus fulfills the role of prophet. Jesus fulfills the role of prophet. We see this in in verses 12 through 16, we, uh, I'm sorry, verses 17 through, uh, through 19. Uh, and you remember last week as we, as we spoke about Jesus choosing his, his apostles, he, he brought a group of his disciples at large, this larger group of disciples. He brought them up to the mountain, and from them he chose 12 who he, would, who he made apostles. Those are special messengers from Christ sent with a special message basically to preach the good news of the gospel and to perform miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus did that after a night full of prayer, a night full of fellowship with God the Father, speaking, pouring out his heart um, with the Father. And so up on that mountain, Jesus was with his disciples at large and with his apostles— after he chose these apostles, we find him in verse 17, he comes down. And he stood on a level place. And this idea of the level place is, is still kind of a, a mountainous region, not as high as, per se, the, the, the peak of the mountain, not as, not as high as the mountain possibly could be, but still a mountainous area. 
and he had a great crowd of disciples with him. So he had a large amount of disciples. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he has a large amount of people who are following him. It's not just the 12, as I mentioned this last week, but Jesus has a large amount of, of disciples. But Jesus also here has a great multitude of people from, from all the surrounding regions. People are coming from far and wide to see Jesus, to hear him preach. His, his reputation is, is as, as this miracle worker, as possibly the Messiah, is, is expanding. People are starting to wonder who he is, see who he is. There's no doubt that there's something special about this man. Some people would follow him as a disciple. Some people just wanted to see him as a miracle worker. So they'd come to have their diseases uh, cured or healed, and then they would just kind of ultimately reject him, forget him. But Jesus here, in this, uh, as it says in verse 18, it says there are people who, from multitudes of people from all the surrounding regions who came to hear him and to be uh, healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So we see Jesus as this miracle worker. And this is one of the spots where it says, power came out from him and he healed them all. This great crowd of people who were, who, who were sick, who were suffering, who were hurting. I mean, here in Luke chapter 6, verse 19, this is one of these spots where Jesus, he healed them all. All these people who are here on this mountain who came to hear Jesus, Jesus heals them all. And as we, as we see this picture of, of Jesus here, this, this miracle worker who's, who's descending down from the mountain to speak to the people and to perform miracles and, and, and speak the words of God, I can't help but think of Moses in the Old Testament. How Moses would, would ascend Mount Sinai and, and he, would, he would have fellowship with God and he would hear the words of the Lord. God would tell Moses, Moses, go tell my people this. He would give them commandments. He gave them the law and Moses would, would and the people at the bottom, they weren't allowed to go up to the mountain. They, weren't, they were only allowed to approach the mountain so close and in and, 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 and that moment they would see lightning and the cloud would get, uh, clouds would get black and the sky would get black and it was just this majestic, glorifying, terrible, terrifying type of moment as God the Father was just, was just with Moses. It was incredible. And then Moses would come down the mountain and of course we, we know that he would find a bunch of unfaithful people but in, but in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, we read this. We, we read, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. We see the, the Jews anticipated a prophet greater than Moses. And Moses was a great prophet. Moses was a godly prophet. Moses did some amazing miracles. I mean, if you look through the book of Exodus, we can see, you know, miracle after miracle that, that God did through Moses. It wasn't Moses, but God worked through that man. Moses was a great and godly leader. He wasn't a perfect leader. He was a sinful leader. He was a flawed leader. Multiple times through the, 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 uh, through the Torah, we can, read, we can read, Moses was not a perfect man. He's a flawed leader. But God promised that he would raise up a prophet to come who would speak the words of God. There was this greater prophet to come. Jesus is that greater prophet. 
And, and, I, and, and I believe as, as we're looking here in, in verses 17 through, through 19, we're, give, we're getting that prophet greater than Moses type of Im, imagery. As Jesus comes down the mountain, and he's going to come here, he's going to do miracles, he's going to speak the word of God, he's going to teach, he's going to speak with the authority of God. And see this, this is far greater, far greater than what happened with Moses isn't it? You see that? Because in that moment with Moses coming down the mountain to speak the words of God, you know what's better? The second person of the Trinity coming down the mountain to speak the words of God, to do miracles with his own hands, to, to, to heal them all, to cure them all, and to speak with, as, as an authority, as the authority the King of kings and the Lord of lords there to preach and to teach in that moment. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how great of a moment that must have been? Can you, can you imagine just the, the, the excitement that filled that, filled that area, that, that flat area? Can you imagine also how terrifying it must have been? This, this man who's healing all of these diseases is here to speak now. And it's kind of it's kind of this imagery here of a man who is doing the kind of things that Jesus was doing must be heard. We must listen to him. We must listen to him. And so here Jesus he begins to teach. He begins to teach, but but in verse twenty, he I, I believe. This Sermon on the Mount, as we start with these Beatitudes, I believe it's meant for a specific group of people. It says here, there, there were crowds, there was a multitude, but in verse 20 it says this, that Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So here in this, in this context, Jesus is, I believe, preaching to his disciples. Now, was it of benefit to everyone listening? Yes. Certainly. Could it be applicable? Certainly. But only as much as they would repent and trust in Christ and, and become a disciple of Jesus Christ. But, but I believe one of the keys to interpreting this is understanding that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. We see that. So here comes this authoritative teacher, this prophet of God, the second person of the Trinity coming down here and teaching his disciples. Amazing. Amazing. Let's hear what he has to say. Because here I believe Jesus is going to define the good life. I really do. So what do we see? Point number two. The good life, if we're going to define it, if we're going to define the good life, how does Jesus define it? Probably not how you define it. Certainly not how I would necessarily define it, per se. But here's how Jesus defines it. The good life is marked by poverty. Point number two. The good life is marked by poverty. Jesus here, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The good, the good life is marked by poverty. You're saying, Brian, where, where are you getting this idea of, of the good life? Kind of a weird way of putting it. Well, I, I get it from, from this idea, and we're going to see this word, uh, the NASB and the ESV both translates blessed. Okay, so, so we see this word, 
It's uh, in, in all these, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, blessed are you who weep, blessed are you when people hate you, okay? It's the word blessed. It is the, um, it is the Greek word makarios, makarios. I don't expect you to write that down, nor do I think it's all that important that you remember that. But, but, it, but, it's, but it's an interesting word. It, is a, uh, it was a very, very Greek word, and it was a very Greek concept. It really had to do, blessed is not the best word, and I don't say that often, but blessed is not the best word to even describe what's going on here. It's really, maybe some of your, maybe some of your, uh, your Bibles, I think maybe the NASB does it, has the word happy, maybe in, in the subtext there. Happy is better, but, but still doesn't cut it. It actually has to do with a, a flourishing. What, is, what does it mean to flourish? It means an individual who's flourishing, that their life is flourishing. It's happy. It's good. It's joyful. It's certainly blessed, but it's this whole encompassing idea of human flourishing. This, this word makarius has to do with human flourishing. What's it look like for your life to flourish? This is what Jesus is getting at here. You want, you want to know what it looks like to, to flourish, to have the good life, to have the life that's fruitful and good and beneficial and happy? Listen to Jesus. We've heard it said before. Maybe you've heard it said. I probably said it because I used to believe this. I, I, I've heard it said that Jesus doesn't care about your happiness. He only cares about your joy or he only cares about your peace. I don't believe that. So if I've said that in the past, I'm sorry. The more I study, God certainly cares about your happiness. Amen. He does. He cares about your happiness. But not your happiness as you would possibly define it, and not your happiness as the world would define it, but happiness and joy based upon how he finds it, how he defines it. So we're talking about flourishing as the way that God, the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth and everything you see and everyone you see as how he and his wisdom and his sovereignty and his love and his holiness defines it. And that's all that matters, right church? And so the, the idea that, that, we, that we kind of look at in this, in this Sermon on the Mount, both, both here in Luke, but mainly also if you go back and look through Matthew chapters 5 through 7, as we see the Sermon on the Mount there in, in greater detail and greater depth, it really has to do with the idea of, of human flourishing. How can one flourish? And, and the idea that we're going to see here throughout all of the Sermon on the Mount through these next few weeks is it really only continues through chapter 6 here. But we're going to see that, that this idea of, of virtue. And what I mean by virtue, becoming a virtuous person, is that oftentimes we think that Christ maybe just saved us so that he could fix our behavior. Maybe that's what your idea of Christianity is. That, that, that Christianity is all about outward behavior. That I can do the right thing. You know, maybe I once was doing drugs, but now I come to church. Maybe I once stole, but now I give money to the church. You know, the, 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 the outward behavior. That's how, sometimes how we parent, isn't it? We don't, we don't really care so much who the child is becoming as long as they don't do stuff to embarrass us. So we, we give them correction and send them on their way. 
without ever hitting the heart. And that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't taking people uh, from every tribe, nation, every tongue, and, and working on behavior modification. Now, our behavior does change. Those of us who are in Christ, our, our behavior does change. We do demonstrate fruits of the Spirit. But to be a truly virtuous person, to, to, to be the kind of person that Jesus is creating, it's a, it's a change of whole being. It's a change of heart. It's a change of desire. It's a cha- it's, we are literally a new creation. We, we are a person that, that, not, that doesn't just have outward righteousness, but has a desire for inward righteousness as well. Doing the right things for the right reason, for the glory of God. It's not, it's not just that I have this pure, pious heart with no action. It's not that I have action, outward works, with no heart. The truly virtuous person, those who have been changed and saved by Jesus Christ, is a person who has a new heart with a new life. And we're going to see what that looks like because the Pharisees, specifically in these contexts here, do, do you remember? I know it's been a few weeks, but we've, we've looked going through Luke so far, and we've had several, several stories of the Pharisees in their outward righteousness and their outward hypocrisy and their outward arrogance condemning Jesus because he did not follow their man-made rules. So that's the way Luke kind of sets the story up. But in Matthew, Jesus in chapter 5, he says, he tells the disciples, he tells the crowds there, he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And what's he saying? He's saying, your righteousness must exceed that of this outward type of moralistic, you know, works righteousness. It must exceed that. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. And so what we're going to see over these next few weeks uh, including today, including here in this point two that continues to prolong, um, is that Jesus is deeply concerned with our hearts. Deeply. Jesus is so deeply concerned with our hearts. He's far more concerned with our hearts than he is even with our outward actions, and I'll say that. Because we can't have a truly, we can't do a good work without a heart that loves the Lord. We can't. It's impossible. I don't care how, how well-behaved you look or how well-behaved your kids look or how whatever. Without a heart that longs for Christ, everything we have and everything we do is filthy rags. So Makarios, blessed, yes, happy, yes, but think greater, flourishing. Flourishing. And so what do we see that? Jesus says here, first, first, flourishing are the poor. Flourishing are the poor. Wow, isn't that... Isn't that <laughs> contradictory to what the world says? I mean, goodness gracious. When, when, you, when you look at this past election cycle, you would think that the absolute worst thing in the worst place in the entire world that you could ever be is poor. I mean, in all of eternity and in everything, the, wor- the worst thing for you possibly is that you could have no money that's the worst. That's as bad as it gets. There's no money. And here we see in, 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 in Luke, this word tokos, poor, it, is, it, it certainly does mean someone who is poor, someone who is in, impoverished. Matthew highlights it a little different. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke says, blessed are the poor. So what is it? Is it, is it 
is this a heart posture or is this a socioeconomic thing that Jesus is getting at? I actually think it's both. And, and, and the way that the poor are often described in God's word, the truly poor, the pious poor, are those that, that recognize their deep need. They recognize their deep need. And often they recognize their deep need because they truly do have deep need. They don't have anything. They're fully trusting on other people. They're truly trusting, not in themselves, but truly trusting on everything outside of themselves. And, and so, so I think there's a two-fold aspect here. One, there's an aspect of as Jesus is looking at his disciples, and as they would follow Jesus, they, we'll talk about this in a second, they would be persecuted. They would lose their, many of them would lose their lives. Many of them would lose their homes. Many of them would lose their family and their friends, and they would be stricken into a life of poverty because they chose to follow Christ. Many of them, even at this point, they're, they're, Jesus ministered to the poor, the Pharisees did not like that. The Pharisees loved their money. The scribes loved their money. They loved their power. They did not associate with the poor. Jesus comes and he does. And as we see through Luke chapter or Luke as a whole, Jesus has a heart for the for the for the lowly. Jesus has a heart for the heart the for a heart for the type of people that most of us ignore. Jesus pursues those types of people, and so. Here Jesus comes and he's, he's looking at poor people who are his disciples and he's, and he's telling them at the same time, follow me, it's probably going to result in some type of poverty. It's probably going to result in, some, in for many of you, a lack of family and friends and stability. But even in that lowest point of the earth, even as low as it gets from an earthly standpoint, having no money, Jesus says, if you are my disciple, you're flourishing. If you are my disciple, you got it all. If you are my disciple, yours is the kingdom of God. Amen. Isn't that beautiful there? That's not how we think in this world, is it? Oh, we got to have money. We got to have power. We got to have prestige. We got to have influence. And as long as I have that, which, which is a endless pursuit. I'll be happy. I'll be flourishing. I'll be good. But Jesus says, no, blessed are you who are poor. And this poor is not just a, not just a, a lack of money. The idea is not that church, we should just go ahead and give away our money, quit our jobs and be poor. It's not, you know, don't, don't think this morning because you have no money, that means that you are right with God. Please don't think that. You know, I, I will tell you this, in my job, I deal with a lot of, a lot of homeless people. And, and Brandon does, and Bill does, and, and, uh, and uh, Hunter Titus does as well. And I'll tell you, some of them are some of the meanest people I've ever met in my entire life. I got into kind of a little shouting match this week. And Brandon saw this, this dude. I mean, he told me I was number one more than a few times. And it was awesome. And we had to kick him out. And so I'm just telling you right now, the Lord is not the Lord is not saying, you know, as long as you don't have money, that, that you're good and you're a holy person. That's not what he's saying. You could be poor, and unless you repent and trust in Christ, then, then yours is not the kingdom. Don't think that just because you have no money, this is talking about you. But oftentimes, as, as the way that, they, that, that the disciples would hear this and people in that culture would have heard it, they, they, they would have associated with the lowly. Matthew, descri he, he describes it different, and, and, and I believe, you know, they just, Luke is 
capturing the language a little bit differently, but the poor in spirit. It's a, it's a spiritual type of poverty. It's a spiritual type of bankruptcy. It's, it's, the, type of, it's the type of bankruptcy that notices there's, there's nothing good in me. I have nothing to offer God. I am worthless apart from God. I, I need an outward righteousness. I need saving. I'm not good. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus considers the one thriving, the one blessed, the one happy, who has recognized their deep depravity and has authentically repented in worship before a holy God. Theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. As we think of the kingdom, we, 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 think, of, we think of God's working all things together for his eternal rule. There does come a kingdom where Christ will reign physically. No sin, no presence of sin, no power of sin, no one opposing God. Pure perfection. Everything done for his glory, period. And we will reign with him, church. Those of us who are in Christ. And when you have repented and trusted in Christ, you've recognized your spiritual bankruptcy or poverty, friend. Yours is the kingdom. You're not fighting against the kingdom of God. You're part of the kingdom of God. That is good news. When you sit in your seat today, friend, when you sit in your seat today, do you sit there proud of who you are? You sit there proud of who you are. Are you proud of the man you've become? Are you proud of the woman you've become? Are you owing it all to yourself? Are you proud of your family? My family's this way because of me. Are you, are you proud of, of your ministry? My ministry is this way because of me and because of how good I am. Do you think too much of yourself? That is not a thriving life. That is not the type of thriving Jesus is talking about. Friend, if you're sitting here today, if you're sitting here proud and you're sitting here boasting in yourself and boasting in your own righteousness and boasting in your own obedience and boasting in your image, friends, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. See, we can confuse each other and we can look better than each other in our own little standards and we can, we can compare and have this little report card of how we do better than one another. But when we look to Jesus, we see pure holiness, zero flaws, pure perfection, pure holiness. And when we look to Jesus, he doesn't make much of ourselves. He makes much of himself. Oh, but he offers mercy, and he offers his spirit to change us and to sanctify us and to make us like Christ. And the first thing the spirit does is break us of our sin. Repentance. The road to the kingdom is marked by repentance. Point number three. The good life is marked by hunger. The good life is marked by hunger. 
He says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. So again, is, what's Jesus talking about? Is Jesus talking about a physical hunger? Is Jesus talking about a spiritual hunger? And, and again, I would say probably there is a both aspect. Following Jesus, if, you res, if it results in, in, in uh, persecution and kind of being on the run, losing a family, losing your livelihood, and all these things, that's probably going to result in some type of hunger. Probably going to result in some type of, of persecution where you go without. But the key to happiness is not just saying, I'm not going to eat. That's not necessarily what the main point is. In, in, in Matthew, it gets at this idea of who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's, it's, a, it's a holy hunger. Longing for the things of God. The, these, these, these happy and these thriving individuals, they're, they're, they're not hungry for primarily for fame. They're not primarily hungry for fortune or relevance or respect or for things, for vacations or whatever. They're thirsty for righteousness. They're hungry for righteousness. The kind of righteousness that is only provided in Christ Jesus. Not in just being a better person. Not just changing a few of your habits. But the kind of righteousness that's a result of of that spiritual brokenness and the spiritual poverty and looking to Christ, who Christ fulfills that righteousness for us and he, and he gives us a new heart and he, and he changes us. We're hungry for that. We're, we're hungry for God's will on earth to be done as it is in heaven. We're hungry to see our lives changed. We're hungry to see our neighbor's lives changed. We're hungry to see our nation and our culture changed and not changed to become more Republican or become more Democrat not not changed to see like I just I just want things to go my way once we're hungry and thirsty to see God working in our communities working in our homes we're hungry we're hungry to see God save our children we're hungry we're hungry to see our, our lives and our, our hearts change as, as, we, as we sin and, and we're, we, we, we hate it. We say, and we say, Christ, change me. Make me like you. T- save me from this hypocrisy. Save, save me from my apathy. Save me from my arrogance. Make me like Christ. We, we look at our culture and we see the corruption and, and we're hungry for Christ to work. And guess what? He doesn't do that through the voting booth. He doesn't do it through public policy. He does it through the preaching of the word. As Christ saves sinners and changes them and makes them more like himself. And notice those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness will be satisfied. Isn't that good news? Oh, it's so hard right now in our culture as we look and we see just corruption. We see all the sin. It's sad. It's, it's unsettling. And I know many of us, we, we want God to move 
And I know we see a sin in our own lives and we hate it. We want God to move. Oh, dear friends, those who truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, Christ will fulfill that. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? There does come a day. There comes a day when there will be no more sin. Period. All this angst that you felt over the past year with COVID and politics and all that and the, and the disunity and the, and the hurt feelings and all this, all that's going away. It's going away. Why? Because Jesus promises us that. It's going away for those of us who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So as you, as you think about your life, as you think about your life, are you hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Are you hungry and thirsty to see God move? Are you hungry, hungry and thirsty to see the Lord save people and to change people and to conform them to, to the image of Christ? I would ask, where, where does the pursuit of holiness fall in your life? It's easy to say you desire holiness. Are you pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ through his word? Are, are, you, are you coming to his word and are, are you looking at it and saying, Lord, show me Jesus? Does, does that characterize your life? If it doesn't, then you're probably not hungry and thirsty for righteousness. You're probably not. Has the Lord so changed your heart through, through, the, through, the, through the scriptures and by the power of the Spirit that, that you go out and you share the gospel? That you preach the good news? That you align your life in such a way that you're going to make disciples and be on mission to tell the world about Jesus, to tell your community about Jesus, to tell your workplace about Jesus, to, to tell you know, your neighborhood about Jesus? Is your life aligned in such a way that, that that is actually what you hunger and thirst for? If not, we probably don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Don't lie to ourselves. We can't, we can't look here at the Sermon on the Mount and just say, yep, checked all the boxes, I'm good. There are probably areas in which we need repentance. And dear friends, the same thing, where we look at the, the spiritually poor, those who are spiritually hungry, if you're not, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He will change you. He is the way to righteousness. He is the way to holiness. He is the one that gives us a new heart and puts his spirit within us that, that causes us in the new covenant here, friends, to, to desire holiness, to obey. He does that, not us. It's not through our willpower. It's not through, it's not through our own efforts, our own obedience. We look to Jesus. That's the answer. Look to Jesus. Fourth, the good life is marked by weeping. The good life is marked by weeping. Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. I think this is very similar to hunger and thirsting for righteousness and a kind of, kind of response, because we're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. We see in our culture, it's not there. We often see in our own lives, we're broken over that. We're weeping. We should be a people who longs for the returning of the Lord. Do you long for that, church? Do you long for God's returning? Do you believe that he is coming again? I, I, I remember when I was some of you guys' age, you know, some of you college students' age, and young people, and newly college and high school, I was, I, I was young. 
And I did not look forward to the Lord's return. It's like, I want to get married first. I want to have, you know, some kids. I want to have, you know, some career, make some money. But maybe one day I'll get excited. Maybe one day I'll get excited that the Lord will come. But after he kind of does all this other earthly stuff for me, and then I'm good. And kind of like the older I get, the more and more I'm like, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Your eyes are open to your own wickedness. Your eyes are open to the wickedness of the world. And, and it, the, the older I get, I will say I feel like the more I am learning to trust God and not trust the world and not trust myself. But there comes a day that Christ is coming. And throughout this past year, I've, I've found myself more broken over the fact that I want him to come. And, and how evil the world is, how many of us can even play a part in that. I, I long for the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. I, I long for Christ to return and to reign and to rule and to make all things new. That's our hope. And, and Christ says, those of us who are weeping over sin, those of us who are weeping over our nation, those of us who even weep as we follow Christ and we lose family and it hurts, or we follow Christ and we lose possessions or lose our home or would have been very applicable to that time, those who would weep over such things, because it still hurts, friends, you will laugh. You will laugh. Can you, can you think of two polar opposite emotions? Weeping and laughing. Sometimes I guess you can laugh until you cry, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's, he's talking about a, a deep mourning over sin that turns into laughter. In, in Isaiah 61, Jesus says that he will comfort the brokenhearted, and he will. Are you brokenhearted this morning? Are you broken over sin? Are you, are you just broken over the condition of the world? Dear friends, repent and trust in Christ. Look to Jesus. He promises to be our comforter. He's the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. Your comfort will not come from your politics. Your comfort will not come from your bank account. Your comfort and your laughter, it comes from the Lord. They will be comforted. He will come. Number five, the good life is marked by persecution. The good life is marked by persecution. Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and, and when they exclude you and revile you. And spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Thriving. Thriving. <laughs> Thriving. You get that? Thriving are you. Your life is thriving. Your life is complete. Your life is whole. Your life is happy. Your life is blessed when people hate you. When they hate you. 
and when they exclude you. Does anybody like to be excluded? And when they revile you and spurn your name as evil. Now what makes this true, this blessing, this thriving, this happiness, what makes this true uh, uh, for someone to be hated and, and to be excluded and reviled and spurned, their name is evil. What makes it true blessing and true thriving and true happiness is not because they're hated for being a jerk. It's not because they're hated because they're a loudmouth. It's not because they're hated just because they're annoying. Or they cheat people. Or they wrong people. Or they lie to people. There's thriving and blessing in the midst of hate, exclusion, and so on, on account of the Son of Man. That's where the blessing comes from in the midst of persecution. That's where the blessing comes on the account of false accusations because of following Christ. That persecution comes because we are conformed to the image of Christ and the character of Christ, and we walk according to the ways of Christ. It's not because we act sinful. People can hate you because you're sinful, and there's absolutely nothing honoring or happy about that. Nothing. Not at all. We can have this kind of like false martyr syndrome where we're like, we're just a jerk for Jesus, and we think that people like, you know, don't like us. They don't know. They don't like you because you're a jerk. I don't like you because you're a jerk. That's why they don't like you. But here we see Jesus, and, and, and he's there, and he's perfect, and he's holy, and he's just, but he's also merciful. He speaks boldly, but he's also compassionate, and he, and he, and he, and he, he only does it the way that he can do it. And in, in the midst of his holy, perfect life, he's persecuted. He's falsely accused. The world's not going to love us, church. We're, like Jesus' strategy here is not be like, like just buddy-buddy enough with the world. Be just enough like the world that, that they're going to, you know, love us. They're going to listen to us. And then maybe, maybe they'll come to know you as Savior. They'll come to know Christ as Savior. That's not the strategy. Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's highlighting the fact that you will be hated for my name, disciples. You will be hated for my name. As we talked about last week, every single one of these apostles were martyred because of following Christ. Because they obeyed Christ. And all throughout church history, we see that. And even throughout the world right now, we see that. You follow Christ, you're you're suffering and you're persecuted. To follow Jesus, to truly follow Jesus, is to have a life that the world hates. To have a character that the world hates. Because you have a Savior that the world hates. 
And a student will become like his master. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will become more and more like Jesus Christ. And the world will hate it. The world will hate your convictions. The world will hate the way you raise your family. The world will hate the things you do. The world will hate the things that you don't do. And they're not just going to say that they hate God. What they're going to do is they're going to make false accusations against you. They're going to say, oh, you desire holiness? You're a bigot. You're a bigot. Oh, you, you don't agree with the philosophies of the world? You're racist. They're going to look at you and say, oh, you don't believe in X, Y, Z? You're anti-science. And sure, there are some people who proclaim the name of Christ who are bigots and are anti-science. And there are some people who you know, are racist. But all throughout church history, as we look at many of the way Jesus' people have been persecuted, they've, they've been falsely accused. Think of the early Baptists. They were accused of, of being pedophiles. They're accused of bathing in the, in the rivers naked with their brothers and sisters. The early church was considered cannibalistic because they partook of the Lord's Supper. And many people were martyred for these reasons, for these false accusations. Even consider our Savior himself. He was put on a cross with the accusation that he was going to overthrow Rome. That was not Jesus' main mission, to overthrow Rome. It was to build his kingdom. All throughout the life of a Christian, all throughout the life of the church, Jesus' Disciples have been hated, have been falsely accused, have been reviled because they followed Christ. Not because they were jerks. And Jesus says, when you are hated, Christian, when you are excluded, and when you are reviled, and when your name is spurned as evil, on the account of me, rejoice in that day. When persecution comes, we can rejoice. We see this in the book of Acts, don't we? Who the, those who, who are let out of prison, they go and keep preaching the gospel. Why? Because they, they found it an honor to be persecuted for the name of Christ. They found it joyful to be persecuted for the name of Christ. Many martyrs found it a, a joy and an honor to be martyred for the sake of Christ. A few who we talked about last week. And they can rejoice, and they can leap for joy because their reward is great in heaven. This is one of these, again, one of these eschatological promises Jesus tells us to look forward to. Those of you who are in Christ, this is as bad as it gets. And for some of you, I know that might be pretty bad right now. This is as bad as it gets. And there comes a day, friends, again, when we will be with Jesus face to face. And he says, in that day, your reward is great. Because people have hated God's people since the beginning of time. And Jesus mentions for how his prophets of old were persecuted. Prophets of old were hated, threatened with their lives. And ultimately, we know Jesus was treated the same way. As we think about following 
Christ, we can look at our lives and rejoice because if we are hated and we are persecuted, then we get to participate in the same type of things that Christ participated in and yet still remain sinless and remain joyful and remain holy. And so notice as we, as we look at these implications of the good life, these implications of, of a filled life, a, a, a happy life, a, a blessed life, a, a whole life, the implications of the good life, notice that we don't flourish like the world. Do you see that? We do not flourish like the world. But we flourish in the world. We don't flourish like the world, but we do flourish in the world. In, in, the, in the midst of this world that is, that, is, that is continually on this rat race every day for success and happiness and other things, we find our joy and our hope and our happiness, and we flourish in Jesus. And that is a life marked of spiritual poverty, spiritual hunger, spiritual weeping and persecution. You want to be a, Jesus, you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, friends? That's the life you're signing up for. So Jesus does offer us the good life. Jesus offers us a happy life. But not the way that these blasphemous false teachers, prosperity gospel garbage teachers preach. That it's all about health, wealth, and earthly prosperity. That's antithetical to what Jesus is talking about here. No, it's, it's brokenness. It's hunger. It's weeping. And it's persecution. That's what Jesus says. When our lives are marked by such things, that is the good life. Because Jesus will fulfill every one of your desires, if those are your desires. And each one of those desires is a work of the Spirit in your heart and is a sign that you are a Christian. We can rejoice. We live in the world, but we are distinct from the world. We don't pursue the same things the world does. We don't have the same character or desires the same thing as the world does. So as we live out this distinct virtuous life, this blessed life, as we, as we, as we live it out, Jesus is glorified. As we live it out, people see our lives and two things happen. They desire to follow Christ— Maybe, as we see in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, they, they see our good deeds and they give glory to God. That can happen, that we're, we're faithful and, and we walk according to God's word, and people do notice and they come to follow Christ. Or they persecute us and they kill us. Either way, guess what? Christ is glorified. And if you are in Christ, if you truly are in Christ, for you, friends, that is enough. That's enough. Jesus offers us the good life. But then point six, as we finish, Jesus gives a warning as well. Jesus gives a warning. Jesus says this, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. We think 
about the rich, and oftentimes the way that it would have thought of to be rich would be a way to, to cheat people, like we saw with Levi. He, he would have cheated people. He would have, he would have cut corners. He would have defrauded people and not care anything about it. Life, life is all about money. And oftentimes in our culture, if you work hard enough and you spend your life trying to pursue money, oftentimes you get it with no, you know, with no care for anything else in the world. This idea of, 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 of being rich means that you're self-serving, that you're self-sustaining, that you have everything you need inside of you and with you right now. You don't need anything else. You're satisfied with that. That's where it also gets to where you are full now. You know, I, I don't have any hunger for anything else except for my stuff, for my success. All earthly riches and earthly gain and, and earthly happiness— he says, of the rich, he says, you have, you have received your consolation. You want your stuff? There it is. Have your stuff. You've received it. There's your prize. And guess what? When you die, someone else gets your stuff. And it's going to end up at goodwill. That's what's going to happen. Because nobody wants your stuff. I don't care how nice your stuff is right now. In a few, a few years, your stuff's going to be old. Nobody cares. It's worthless. What a, what a wretched life living for things. What a wretched life living for stuff. Man, and woe to you who are full now. You've got it all. I've got my phone. I've got my Instagram. I've got my meals. I've got a, you know, I've got my little car. You got it now. If that's what your life's about, you will be hungry. You will be. You will receive the wrath of God for all of eternity. No happiness. No joy. This is, this is the, the fire of hell. You're going to have a, a, a quenching in your mouth for, for, for thirst, and there will be nothing to satisfy it for all of eternity. All of it. Woe to you who laugh now. You know, you think this is all that there is. You know, I, you know maybe my, my party just won, so life is good. Hopefully they can stay there. My life is good. It's It's happy. Got everything. I've got the job I need. Life is just good. No recognition of sin. No recognition of depravity. No, no, no desire for the world to know Christ. Just all good. I just want to have a little party. I want to have fun. I just, I just, I just want to be happy. You shall mourn and weep. And, and to mourn, you know what it means? It means to mourn. You know what weep means to weep. Weep. Jesus speaks of hell as a place of gnashing of teeth, of pain and, and, and weeping and, and mourning. The wrath of God, friends, is real. And for those of you who have not repented in Christ and trusted in Christ, dear friends, your eternity will be one of hunger and mourning and weeping. Your, your life, as it says in, in verse 26, will be like one of the false prophets. You will go to hell. You will go to hell. You will. If you have not repented, that makes some of you uncomfortable. Even some Christians don't like the talk of hell. But unless you repent and trust in Christ, woe to you. Woe to you. Hear the words of Jesus. Woe to you. You are without excuse. 
As if you're sitting here today, you're saying, Lord Jesus, if he just would have told me, here it is, friends, woe to you. You will receive the wrath of God. You will mourn, and you will weep, and you will be hungry for eternity. But the good news is, we have a merciful Savior. We have a gracious Savior. We have a Savior who offers satisfaction and laughing. We, we have a Savior who offers his kingdom. And you don't achieve these things by your own effort. And you don't achieve these things by your own behavior. You don't achieve these things by coming to church and being a good person. You achieve these things by simply casting yourself upon the mercy of God. Because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. And as we repent of our sin, where we recognize our wretchedness, we recognize our depravity, we recognize that, and, we, and, and by the work of the Spirit, we hate that, and we look to Christ, our perfect Savior, who satisfied all of God's righteous requirements for us to be saved. And then in his passive obedience, as, he, as he's put up on the cross, and he takes the punishment of our sin and shame, and he's the full propitiation, meaning the full satisfaction of God's wrath as we look to that Savior, and we put all of our trust in Him, and we fling all of our hope on Him. Dear friends, He saves us, and He changes us, and His Spirit is inside of us living, and He gives us hearts that truly do, that truly do result in spiritual poverty, in spiritual hunger, in spiritual weeping that will one day be turned to laughter, one day shall be satisfied, and that do receive the kingdom of God. What great news, church. That is our Savior. That is what He's done for us. That is what we can look forward to now. That is what we can look forward to for all of eternity. So whether today you're struggling, Christian, you're struggling with this world, you're struggling with your income, you're struggling with your health, you're struggling in your relationships with your friends, you're struggling... We can rejoice, we can be happy, and we can be fulfilled by the joy that is in the Lord. He is our strength. He is our reward. Dear friends, may we be a people who recognize the good life. May we, be friend, may we together come together and pursue it together with joy by the power of the Spirit.